Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop, and we always like to start with the Angelus. Uh, do you have any intentions for our Angelus today? Well, we're at the very beginning of Respect Life Month, the month of October, so I think it's good for us to pray for a greater respect for God's gift of life, pray for all those whose lives are vulnerable and threatened, those at the beginning and the end of life, and we give thanks to God today for the gift of life. So we pray for the building of a culture of life in our, in our world. Very good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, Mary full, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, Father and of the Son, Son and of the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop Kevin Rhodes, Bishop of Fort Wayne South Bend, talks about the newly beatified Blessed Stanley Rother, a missionary priest from Oklahoma who was martyred in Guatemala in 1981. And then St. Francis of Assisi, whose feast day we celebrate today. Then it's on to questions submitted by listeners. If you would like to submit a question for Bishop Rhodes to answer on a future show, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and I'd like to welcome Bishop back to the diocese. Hello, Kyle. Good to be back. You went to the beatification of Father Stanley Rother? That's right. I mean, I was only out of the diocese about 30 hours. So <laughs> okay. It was just an overnight, but it was a wonderful, joyful event in Oklahoma City. The Archbishop of Oklahoma City is a good friend of mine. We studied together in graduate school, Archbishop Paul Coakley. Wow. And um, what a great day for the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City, for and actually for the church throughout the United States and the world to have Father Stanley Rother, a priest and martyr, be declared blessed, be beatified. You know, he's the first U.S.-born priest to be beatified, and he's also the first U.S.-born martyr yeah. to be beatified. And I'd like to add with a little bit of pride that he's he was an alumnus of Mount St. Mary's Seminary, yeah. where I served for many years. Archbishop Coakley was an alumnus of the Mount. We have 25 of our seminarians are studying at the Mount now. It was um, 
like a Mount reunion. I saw a sure. lot of my former students and, but there was, it was packed. The Cox convention center where the mass was held, it was over 20,000 people. So hmm. a, several thousand had to be watching another venue, Yeah, but it was a, a really great event. And, have you been to canonizations or beatifications in the past? Many, many. In Rome, when I was a student, I attended a lot of beatifications and canonizations. Back then, beatifications were celebrated usually in Rome. It was only under Pope Benedict that the church decided to celebrate beatifications in the local areas where the these holy men and women were from. Mm-hmm. But canonizations are still celebrated usually in Rome, but beatifications are now in the local area. So this is only the second beatification ever celebrated in the United States. And so who does the beatification if the Pope isn't there? He has a representative who reads the apostolic letter at the Mass declaring the person blessed. And in this case, it was Cardinal Angelo Amato, who is the prefect of the Congregation for the Causes of Saints. He's the head of that department of the Vatican that studies and investigates lives of uh, people who are proposed for sainthood. Uh-huh. And then who would have been the main celebrant? He was. Okay. He was the main celebrant and the homilist. Okay. Cardinal Amato, yeah. Archbishop Coakley spoke uh, uh-huh. a little bit at the Mass, but Cardinal Amato gave a wonderful homily about Father Father Stanley. So how many cardinals and bishops were there? There were over 50 bishops. Uh-huh. Um, there were hundreds of priests. Yeah. Um, it was really quite an event. Um, and I think it was um, an opportunity to reflect on the life of this very ordinary priest who was extraordinary in mm-hmm. his what happened to him. For those who don't know the story, you can read it. I wrote up something in Today's Catholic. There's also great biography you can buy. It's published by OSB mm-hmm. by an uh, author named Maria Scarlanda. It's a very, Scaparlanda, excuse me, which talks about his life. You know, he was a farm boy in a little town in Oklahoma called Okarchi. Mm-hmm. When he was in high school, he discerned the call of the priesthood. And when he went to the seminary, he failed his first year because he, he was very poor in Latin. But the bishop felt he really had a priestly vocation, so he decided to give him another chance and send him to another seminary, to Mount St. Mary's, where he did well and uh, was ordained a priest in 1963, worked for five or six years in his home diocese. At that time, it was the Diocese of Oklahoma City and Tulsa. It was one diocese. Now those are two dioceses. But then after five or six years, he decided to serve in the diocese's mission in Guatemala in a town called Santiago Atitlan. At that time in the 1960s, Pope John XXIII was calling upon the bishops of the United States to send priests to serve in Latin America, where there was a big shortage of priests. So the Diocese of Oklahoma City and Tulsa had a mission that they staffed in this city in the mountainous region of Guatemala. As a matter of fact, it was an area where for about 400 years, they had no priests. It was already evangelized by missionaries back in the 1500s, but then they didn't have a resident priest for 400 years until the Diocese of Oklahoma City and Tulsa sent priests to this mission. And that's where Father Stanley Rother was sent. He worked there for 13 years as a missionary, and he loved the people. And when you think about how much he struggled with Latin, he ended up learning Spanish, and not only Spanish, 
he became fluent in the native language of the people, the Sutuhul Indian tribe, kind of descendants of the Mayan Indians, so they had their own local language. He learned that and was able to celebrate Mass and the sacraments in Sutuhul. And not only that, he helped translate the New Testament into the Sutuhul language. Wow. What is really remarkable about him is how close he was to the people. He would go out, help them farm, teach them some farming techniques that he knew from Oklahoma, like some irrigation work, etc. But he was an ordinary parish priest. He, he visited the sick. He, he celebrated Mass reverently, preached well. Every Sunday, he would go to a different family's home for, for a meal. Hmm. And he just was lived very close to the people, and they loved him. They considered him their spiritual father. But then things became difficult when the Civil War broke out in Guatemala. At first, it was confined to the cities, you know, the major cities. The Catholic Church was really caught in the middle. I mean, it was really the kind of militaristic government versus the guerrillas who were rebelling. Hmm. But a lot of the innocent people were caught in between and many, many Catholics were killed. Well, the war eventually spread to the outlying areas, like the mountainous region of Santiago Atitlan, where Father Stanley Rother was serving. Mm -hmm. And some of his people, some of his prisoners began to disappear, including some of his catechists. Their bodies were found. Sometimes he was the one who had to go and identify the bodies because the families were afraid to because if they were associated with the person killed, their lives would be at risk. Mm. So it was a really, really tough time. And Father Stanley was just there speaking on behalf of his people, attempting to defend them from the oppression that was taking place. And the kidnappings increased, the murders. Then his name appeared on a death list. He was encouraged to go home, which he did. And he was home for a couple months, but his heart was not at peace. He went to the Mount, by the way, he went to Mount St. Mary's for a retreat, hmm. and he'd go up and pray at the grotto. When he was a seminarian, he was in charge of the upkeep of the grotto of Our Lady of Lourdes, which is right up the mountain. And he prayed, and he talked to his friends, good priest friends, and everyone could see that his heart was restless. And he finally, he wrote to his archbishop and said, he had discerned in his prayer very clearly the Lord saying to him, the shepherd cannot run at the first sign of danger. He knew he had to go back, even though he'd probably be killed. So he did return, and there was much joy in the parish. He got back in time for Holy Week. And just a couple months after that, three of the um, government soldiers came into the rectory and he put up a really good fight. He was a strong man. And he didn't want to be taken kidnapped because he felt that if he was kidnapped, people would come and try to save him and might get killed, that he was going to fight to the end. And that's mm -hmm. what he did. And they shot him in the head. And he died as a martyr. That was in 1981. Obviously, his family was devastated. As they prepared to have his body shipped back to Oklahoma to be buried for the funeral, of course, the people would have loved to keep his body because they had such veneration for him as their pastor. And uh, what ended up happening is the family allowed them to keep his heart. Mm -hmm. And his heart is still there in a reliquary in the church of um, Santiago, 
uh, St. James Church in Santiago Atitlan. We hear in the Gospels, greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his sheep, and that's what Father Stanley Rother did. So the church in the United States, we can rejoice at our first U.S.-born martyr, and I think especially an example for our priests of fidelity to the gospel and even to the point of suffering for our people. When did you first hear of Father Stanley Rother? I first heard about him when he was killed. I remember reading it really? in the news back in 1981. I was in Rome at the time. But then when I came back, a priest in Harrisburg and then serving at Mount St. Mary's, I learned even more about his life. Archbishop Harry Flynn was uh, in the seminary with Father Rother at the Mount, but he also was a rector at Mount St. Mary's in the 1970s. And he would often talk in... Um, when he'd give retreats and that about Father Stanley. Hmm. So I remember probably it was from Archbishop Flynn that I first learned the story. And I remember at the Chrism Mass, you spoke about him. Uh, that's a Mass where our priests renew their vows that they've taken. And you mentioned how he's a great example to our priests. Uh, most of our priests are not going to have to make that decision to go into a life-threatening situation. How do you see this relating to their priesthood? I think it's the devotion to the people. I think that, and wherever that leads, and sometimes it may require some suffering, mm. you know, normally not martyrdom, but there can be like a daily martyrdom of dying to self that takes place and giving of ourselves to the people whom we're called to serve. We can't be or shouldn't be aloof from our people. I think of the way Father Stanley worked with the people. He ate with them. So I think there was a lot of good witness that he, he gives for our priests today. And he was a man of prayer, and um, that's certainly a, a great example for our priests. But I think he was very down to earth. He loved the people so much that um, he wouldn't let them be left without priestly ministry without the sacraments. So I think it teaches us, too, the sacrifices that priests need to make. If it means getting up in the middle of the night, if someone's dying to go and anoint them, so be it. If it means that um, we're defending someone who is being hurt in some way, a parishioner, you know, there's all kinds of ways where we can carry the cross in support and love for our people. All right. Well, I have a few more questions about Blessed Stanley Rother and also talk about this being the Feast of St. Francis. Uh, we'll talk about that. And also in a little bit, we'll have some questions that have been submitted by listeners, which you can submit at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. And we'll hear all of that and more here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and we've been talking about blessed, we don't say blessed Father Stanley Rother necessarily. A lot of our, our saints that are priests, they kind of lose that when they pick up the Right, right. The It'd be just blessed Stanley Rother now. Yeah. And can you explain a little bit what that means to be blessed and the different steps on the way to canonization and becoming a, a full saint in the church? Usually it begins on a diocesan level where there's, if someone is considered, where there's a lot of popular devotion towards someone who's died, a, a kind of a, a recognition that this was really a holy and virtuous person in a heroic way. And you'll find that if 
you know, a lot of people, for example, going and visiting the person's grave or whatever, a bishop would then decide maybe to set up a diocesan commission to investigate, to study the person's life, if they have writings, to get testimony from people. And then that whole, all that evidence could be, would then be sent to Rome. And if it looks like it's possible that this is a person of heroic sanctity, then the, uh, the Pope would declare the person a servant of God with the title Venerable. So that's really kind of the first step. Then the Vatican would conduct its own study. There'd be a postulator. That's someone who's kind of working on supporting the cause for canonization. A lot more investigation and also testimony of any miracles that uh, occurred through the intercession of that person. If a miracle is proven, it's a very rigorous process. Scientists and doctors would look at the reported miracle, the alleged miracle. Mm -hmm. If it was proven beyond a reasonable doubt that this was an extraordinary intervention, that a true miracle took place, if, if the church accepts that, at that point, the person could be declared blessed or beatified. So you have both the evidence of the heroic virtue of the person and then a miracle. Mm -hmm. Now, in the case of a martyr, uh, that miracle isn't needed. So okay. in the case of Father Stanley, for example, though there were reported miracles, the Pope declared him a martyr. Okay. And with that means that he died because of hatred for the faith. He was killed because of people's hatred for the faith. So that was the case in his situation. So a miracle wasn't needed. But in order for Father Stanley to become a saint, then a mir another miracle, a miracle is needed. Mm -hmm. But if, he, if it's a non-martyr, they need the two miracles, one for beatification and one for canonization. And so there's no guarantee that he would ever be canonized saint. Correct. I mean, there are many holy men and women that are beatified, but they've never been canonized. Mm -hmm. But if one of these investigations into one of these miracles would prove to be a miracle, then yeah. there's a chance that he could be right. become saint. So I encourage people to pray through Father Stanley's intercession. If there's someone, for example, who has a terminal illness... I think it's a good practice to uh, pray through the intercession of someone who is a possible saint. Does he take on a patronage as a blessed, or is that not to come until sainthood? Well, you, not all not all saints have are patrons of something. I okay. mean, that's kind of a customary kind of thing that happens with some saints. Okay, but I think Father Stanley Rother would be a great patron for parish priests. Yeah, someday. We already have St. John Vianney, but uh -huh. you can also have more than one patron. Sure. Certainly a patron for missionary priests. That would be very specific. I was reading an article from the Catholic News Service about the process of acquiring the relics from him. And I know we're going to have a question from a listener later on about relics, but uh, were you, did you receive any well, of these no, relics? Well, no, but actually, it's there? interesting you ask that because I intend to be writing to my friend, Archbishop Coakley, okay. asking for a relic, and, and maybe I'll get to that this week. I would love to have a relic of, of Father Stanley Rother, Blessed Stanley. I'm thinking, you know, where would I have it? Where would I put it for public veneration? But I think it would be wonderful to have his relic. 
I had lunch with Archbishop Coakley the day before the beatification. Hmm. So we were talking when they exhumed the body, which is what they usually do prior to beatification. He put new vestments on him, etc. And it was one of his ribs that they removed. And that's what they're making the relics out of, little yeah. pieces of, of his rib, one of his ribs. Well. Stay tuned for more about relics. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. Uh, but I did want to remind people the book that you mentioned is called The Shepherd Who Didn't Run by Maria Scaparlanda. Correct. how you pronounce it? And uh, I, I guess I just heard that they're going to be making it into a movie called American Saint. You know what? I just heard about that a couple of days ago, too. The, the, they're writing now the what do you call it the screenplay sure but i i met maria the at, oh, yeah. at the dinner the night before the beatification so we had a great conversation i i asked her a lot of questions yeah. about father stanley because of all her research and so it was really wonderful to talk to her about that and we also talked about the upcoming film good well another saint that we celebrate around this time is saint francis of assisi can you tell us a little bit about his life I, do you have two hours, Kyle? <laughs> uh, we'll have an extended cut. <laughs> uh, St. Francis of Assisi, one of the most popular saints, you know, and I have always had a great devotion to him. I used to love to do overnights in Assisi when I was a student in Rome, and really such an icon of the Lord Jesus. I mean, when we think about the saints, they're all living icons of Christ. But I think when we think of St. Francis, he certainly exemplifies the life of Jesus hmm. in so many ways. I imagine a lot of the listeners know his story. He had a very, I mean, he lived in the late 12th century, early, early 13th century, lived a very carefree, youthful life. He was a um, very popular young man. He had these ideas of chivalry and everything, and he joined the military at that time. And, um, was taken prisoner, became sick, and had to go back to Assisi. And it was then when, his, and during his convalescence, that his spiritual conversion began. And he started to abandon the worldly lifestyle that he had been living. And we have that famous story that was really a key, key part of his conversion when he met a leper on the road. Hmm. And... Um, Francis got out off his, his horse and gave the kiss of peace to the leper. And he had been someone like who was just, um, uh, what would you say, not attracted at all to uh, helping a leper, let alone embracing a leper. Mm -hmm. But then another key moment in his conversion was when he was praying before the crucifix in the little church of San Damiano, a little church that was falling into ruin. It was falling apart. It was dilapidated. And he heard Jesus speak to him from that cross of San Damiano. And Jesus said, go, Francis, and repair my church, mm -hmm. which is in ruins. St. Francis took those words literally. And with his own hands, he started rebuilding, fixing up that little church of San Damiano, of course, we know that our Lord's intention was much more than that. It was for him to help the renewal of the whole church, the spiritual renewal of the Catholic Church, especially at a time when a lot of worldliness had entered into the church. So the church is always in need, as you know, Kyle, of constant renewal and mm -hmm. reform. It was interesting, the Pope at the time, who was a very powerful Pope 
Innocent III had a dream. The principal church of all the churches is the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome. That's the cathedral of the Pope, Mm -hmm. a cathedral of the Diocese of Rome. Pope Innocent III had a dream of the Basilica of St. John Lateran falling down and collapsing. But there was this little religious brother who was supporting it on his shoulders Hmm. to prevent it from falling. And later, when Francis came to visit this very powerful pope, Pope Innocent III recognized that was the little brother that I saw in my dream saving St. John Lateran from falling. Hmm. So, I mean, there's just so many stories about St. Francis. He was definitely a man called by God to renew the church. He had no intention of founding a religious order. That just happened, and he wrote the rule, very simple rule, and so many men followed him, the Franciscan order, Franciscan friars, and then women as well, like St. Clair, which that became the second Franciscan order, the poor Clares. And of course, his charism was such a gift to the church, it did indeed bring about a profound renewal. It was a mendicant order, a mendicant order, so were the Dominicans, they were around the same time, preaching the gospel, evangelizing, we would Mm -hmm. say today, but also by witness of poverty and witness of chastity and obedience. That's what Francis did. He felt this call to live in poverty and to dedicate himself to preaching. In all this, he was always a man of the church. He loved the church. He loved priests and the Eucharist, great devotion to the Eucharist. To live the gospel in its all its truth and all its radicality, that's what St. Francis did. So he's a great inspiration, and and I could go on and on about a lot of other stories of, you know, near the end of his life, he he received the stigmata when he was praying on Mount Laverna. Mm-hmm. This this man who had been Im- really imitating the life of Jesus throughout his life came to that ultimate imitation when he received the very wounds of Jesus in his flesh, in his hands, in his feet, and in his side. So it it really demonstrated or expressed his intimate identification with the Lord. It's great that we celebrate his feast day today. I think of our Franciscan Friars Minor and uh, our Sisters of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration, our poor Sisters of St. Clair. We have a lot of Franciscans here in our diocese, and they remind us of St. Francis and St. Clair, and also, hopefully, of our call to live the gospel and the truth of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel like Francis did. Do you think there's a maybe an odd emphasis on his interaction with animals? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's part of Franciscan spirituality. It's sometimes exaggerated, I think, because I, I would say his love for creation that was really something very profound. Mm-hmm. We see it in the beautiful hymn that he wrote, The Canticle of the Creatures, which I love to pray. But I think sometimes he's reduced to just like the patron saint of animals. And Francis is so much more. Yeah. I mean, I think that is an important aspect, his love for all of God's creations. But not in themselves, but as truly God's creation. He gave praise and thanks to God for all the animals and for the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and and the whole universe. In this day when we need 
to respect uh, creation and the environment. St. Francis of Assisi is a very, very good patron. And also, we associate St. Francis with peace, mm-hmm. which also is a good association. I mean, he was a man of peace. And I think a man of who shows us universal brotherhood. I think about his visit to the to the Egyptian sultan, the, the Muslim sultan of Egypt. When he did that back in the year 1219, he went there to preach the gospel. Hmm. And um, it was interesting that, especially when we think of what's going on in the world today, where he, he went to dialogue with this Muslim sultan, there was truly mutual respect. As a matter of fact, the, the sultan welcomed him. So even though there was conflict even back then between Christianity and Islam, we have this example of, of peaceful dialogue of, of St. Francis with the Egyptian sultan. So many of the things that you just described, the respect for environment and peace and the poor and this ability to dialogue with opposing viewpoints, I feel like really describe our Pope. Was it a surprise to you when Cardinal Bergoglio took the name Francis as Pope? Yeah, because he's a Jesuit. I thought at first (laughs) that when he took the name Francis, it was for St. Francis Xavier, the great Jesuit missionary. And when he said it was because of St. Francis of Assisi, I was really surprised. Yeah, uh, but you can see it in Pope Francis's teaching and his ministry. Definitely a very, very much a Franciscan current of spirituality. All right. Well, we've got lots of questions from listeners that we'll get to here in just a minute. You can ask your question by going to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop, or you can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll ask the questions that were submitted by listeners right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. It's time that we answer some of the questions that were submitted by listeners. My mom, Joanne Hyman from St. Mary of the Assumption in Decatur said, if my husband and I are traveling and we're snacking in the car, when we realize that we are close to a Catholic church and there is a mass starting in five minutes, can we attend the mass and receive communion? I had a priest friend tell me that if you have a surprise opportunity to receive the Eucharist, it's okay. Your thoughts? Joanne, calling in such a difficult question there. Uh, well, I, I don't know who your priest friend is, but I would disagree. Okay. Um, I, I think that, um, that you should not receive communion. I think the one-hour fast is important mm-hmm. out of respect for the Eucharist. Now, if someone is, needs to... Um, is sick or needs to take medicine all that i mean the medicine wouldn't violate the fast you know it used to be you couldn't uh you had to fast from midnight on mm-hmm. and then that was relaxed by pope pius the 12th and reduced to just three hours before communion now under pope paul the sixth it's reduced to just one hour so i think that out of respect for the eucharist i think we should observe that one hour fast. Now, keep in mind, it's not one hour before Mass, it's one hour before communion. Mm-hmm. So, in that situation, you can hope that maybe the priest preaches long <laughs> and it'll be an hour before you before communion time. Yeah. So, you still go to Mass, but yeah, still go to Eucharist. Mass, definitely. But only receive communion if it's, uh, if it's been an hour. All right. 
Another listener said, thank you for explaining how you discern where priests are assigned. Since our priests work with so many women and women have a feminine genius, allowing a complementary and necessary perspective, would it be possible to have women serving on the personal board for priests? The personnel board? The personnel board is an advisory board to me, mm -hmm. and it's only one avenue by which I make decisions about priest transfers because I also talk to men and women. Okay. Uh, um, I get to know what are the needs of the parish and the needs and situation of individual priests and all of that. So even though there aren't any women on the pr priest personnel board, which is a board just of priests, there aren't laymen on it either. Okay. That shouldn't give the impression that the feminine genius isn't involved because I'm always consulting women. Uh, as well as men when I make decisions. All right. Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And more of your questions are coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our bishop, answering questions submitted by listeners. And our next question comes from Travis Hector from St. Jude's in Fort Wayne, who said, Thank you for a wonderful Mass and homily at the Catholic Mission Day on August 7th. Here's my question. If the human body is to be kept together after death, why are saint bones able to be separated from the rest of their bodies as relics? Travis, thanks for the question. First of all, let me give a little background. The main thing is that the human body is something that even after death needs to be treated with great respect and reverence because it was a dwelling place of the Holy Trinity, hmm. a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the church takes great care that uh, proper decorum, proper disposition of the remains. Our preference, of course, is, is for burial of the body. For centuries, the church never allowed cremation because cremation was done by, by pagans and Christians with their belief in the resurrection of the body would not cremate uh, mm -hmm. people. But now the church does allow cremation as long as the motive is not a denial of the resurrection of the body or if it would be done in any kind of disrespectful way. We would consider scattering the remains or dividing cremated remains. We would consider that disrespectful mm -hmm. or even to keep a person's ashes in their home or whatever. Really, the treatment of cremated remains, they should be buried. I think the church is, is very clear on this. Now, you might then you can talk about the case of relics. First of all, the church is extremely careful about respecting the body's and body parts of saints. For example, the church doesn't allow, there can be no selling of relics, no trade of relics. The church is also careful that they can only be given now to bishops for the purposes of public veneration. So there was in years gone by kind of a lot of relics floating around. Now the church wants it really very careful that relics be only given for purposes of public veneration and 
again, they're only given basically to bishops. And I've gotten a few. I, For example, the parents of St. Therese of Lisieux, after they were canonized, I was able to get their relics and I gave them to St. Therese Little Flower Parish in South Bend. So they are kept for public veneration by the people of that parish. Okay. Um, so this is very different, the public veneration of relics is very different than the private retaining of a person's remains, which the church doesn't allow, which is, I think, what Travis is talking about mm -hmm. in that question. When we think about uh, the important point is when we bury a person, it gives everyone a, a possibility or opportunity to receive the proper respect. And uh, people can go and visit and pray at the gravesite. That's all, I think, really uh, good practice. And if a person's later proposed for sainthood, their body would be exhumed mm -hmm. and um, there'd be a proper protocol, as I mentioned earlier in this show. But, you know, we don't just allow, for example, even when we do that, the um, dividing of relics all over the place in a way that would be, I don't know, suggest any kind of trafficking. It's only for public veneration. By the way, this practice of relics goes back to the early centuries of the church. People would visit, the, especially the tombs of martyrs. Then the practice grew of, of having the bones of martyrs placed in an altar, and people wanted to be buried near the places of, of martyrs. So all this really goes back to, to the early centuries of the church. All right. Another question was, what are the names and symbolism or meaning for all the layers a priest and bishop wear to celebrate Mass? Okay, very good question. <laughs> well, liturgical vestments began really at a time when it, it was the clothing of they were using in early Greek and Roman days, and they were adapted to the Christian liturgy, the, the Mass. These kind of vestments have continued throughout the centuries, going back to, to that time. But they were always distinguished from secular clothing. The liturgical vestments, especially by the quality of them, hmm. because something sacred was being celebrated. And then the church just, just kept those vestments, and they're different than clothes that people wear in ordinary life. They have a liturgical character. So when we go in to celebrate the divine mysteries, we're in a sense becoming detached from the everyday. And that's why we have these special vestments. And each one does have meaning. It's interesting, the person who gave that question was talking about what's the meaning of each of the vestments that a priest wears. Yeah. Well, the first one you put on, although not all priests wear the amice. The amice is a linen cloth with strings on it and you, you tie it. it, it covers your neck. And that way, your secular clothing, your collar, for example, in the case of a priest, is not shouldn't be visible to the people. Okay. Uh, now they make certain albs today that kind of pretty much cover that, but I'm always we should always be careful that our regular clothes should not be showing. I think everyone's probably familiar with the alb. That's the white garment, the long white garment that that a priest wears, that a deacon wears. It reminds us of the white garment that was put on us when we were baptized. Hmm the new and immaculate clothing that every Christian receives through baptism. So it's really a symbol of, the, of sanctifying grace that we receive in the first sacrament, a symbol of purity of heart. So the alb, that color white, 
that whole idea of purity, the whole idea of our new life in Christ, being clothed in Christ. Mm -hmm. Also, I think of that um, line from the book of Revelation, which describes the saints who stand around the altar of the Lamb in heaven. They're the ones who've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And in a sense, in the same way the priest offers Mass with the purity of body and soul and with the dignity of his baptismal character. One of the prayers that we used to say, and some priests still say it, it's optional, when you're putting on the alb, you say, make me white, O Lord, and purify my heart, so that being made white in the blood of the Lamb, I may deserve an eternal reward. Hmm. So some beautiful things. Then, yeah. then comes the cincture, that's the belt, that long thick cord with tassels at the end. It really secures the alb around the waist, and it can be white or sometimes it could be the liturgical color of the day. Okay. And this reminds us of the words of St. Peter in his first letter in the New Testament. When St. Peter writes, gird the loins of your understanding, live soberly, Set all your hope on the gift to be conferred on you when Jesus Christ appears. As obedient sons, do not yield to the desires that once shaped you in your ignorance. Rather, become holy yourselves in every aspect of your conduct after the likeness of the Holy One who called you." Wow. So really, it's the cincture of purity, and it's a very important symbolism. And then on top of, after we put on the this uh, the cincture, then we put on the stole. And the stole is really the distinctive part which shows what grade of holy orders you're in. Okay. You know, a deacon wears it on his left shoulder, mm -hmm. and it goes down, and then the priest wears it over both shoulders, and so does the bishop. And it's a stole is worn in the celebration of all the sacraments, and we even wear it when we celebrate sacramentals. Like, for example, when we're blessing a building or whatever we usually wear the stole and the stole's color varies according to the liturgical feast or the liturgical season so it's a really important vestment it indicates the state of being ordained the ordained office so it, it always has to be worn you know it's forbidden for a priest to celebrate mass without wearing a stole hmm. now one of the uh, prayers that we used to say when we put on the stole was Lord restore the soul the stole of immortality, which I lost through the collusion of our first parents, and un unworthy as I am to approach thy sacred mysteries, may I yet gain eternal joy. Wow. Yeah. And finally we put on the chasuble. Now the chasuble is the vestment for the one who celebrates Mass. Only the priest wears a chasuble, a deacon wears a dalmatic. So really it's it's supposed to cover everything. It's really a symbol of of charity. Uh, when we the old days when they would put on the chasuble, the priest would say, "O Lord, who has said, My yoke is sweet and my burden light, grant that I may so carry it as to merit thy grace." I often think of Paul's letter to the Colossians where he says, "Above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfection." So really, the, the chasuble is only used for the celebration of Mass, not for other sacraments, only for the celebration of the Eucharist. And it really reminds us of the charity of Christ, you know, to put on love. 
basically it comes from a Latin word, casula, which means house. So the house, it covers, completely covers the body. So hopefully this is helpful. Um, yeah. Very good. Well, we have a, a slightly similar but different question. A listener asked, this is a silly question, but I'm curious, could a priest, if he wanted to wear a crazy color or pattern socks instead of plain dark socks with his black slacks or habit? <laughs> Maybe Notre Dame socks or something yeah, like that. Sure. <laughs> you know what? I there's, there's no rule on that. I think we should dress with dignity, especially if we're celebrating mass or whatever. I think we should wear black socks. Bishops can wear purple socks. As a matter of fact, hmm. I have some pairs of purple socks because that's the color for our vesture. But to be honest, even though I have them, I've never worn them. They're yeah. still in my drawer. I can't imagine wearing purple socks. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop. This has been a great episode. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? Sure, Kyle. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome. Join us every Wednesday at noon for Truth in Charity with Bishop Rhodes. To check out previous episodes, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, which is also where you can submit a question for a future show. Thanks to Notre Dame Federal Credit Union for underwriting this program. <laughs>